Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. The idea of food was somewhat a reward system once I became financially quasi-independent, where I could afford to eat in a restaurant. Like I wasn't eating in Michelin star restaurants, but I could afford to go to a steakhouse or I could get a hot dog in the street or I could go to a nice Chinese restaurant and we just ate. And then the first clue that something was wrong with the diet was when my aunt got diabetes and we were told that they were going to have to chop off her feet below her ankles, like a double amputation. And I guess I was just around 30 or so when that happened. Like, it's incomprehensible to me to envision what it would be like. At the time, for me to just think about someone close to me losing their feet was a very, very hard thing to process. And then ultimately, she died of complications associated with diabetes after the amputation. And then my uncle died of heart disease. And then my other uncle died of heart disease. And then my mother got stomach cancer and died. And it was like within three months, like I thought maybe she had an ulcer or had something else or, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever a kid who doesn't want his mother to die is thinking. But we were in definitive denial that she was dying. And she like went downhill and she died. And then my father died of heart disease in the same hospital as my mother. And then my brother, who was less active than me, my older brother, ended up becoming overweight, obese, having the first of three strokes and a heart attack. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Light Watkins Show with yours truly, Light Watkins. If this is your first time here, so I interview ordinary people just like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith, often in the direction of their path, their purpose, or their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact the lives of many others who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who've directly benefited from their work. So I met today's guest several years ago at a wellness conference in Arizona. He used to be known as the Raw Foods Guy after starting a venture called Organic Avenue in New York City. Then he became known as the Juice Guy after starting a raw juice company called Juicero. And then most recently, he's become known as the Sprout Guy. His name is Doug Evans, and Doug has a fascinating backstory of how he went from growing up as a bit of a misfit slash graffiti artist 
to going to the military because he actually wanted to be disciplined and discovering that it was a lot harder than he ever imagined it to be. But he credits that experience with giving him the confidence and the discipline that he would use later in life to take many professional risks that would end up resulting in him starting all these ventures. And then shortly after getting out of the military, Doug started working in graphic design. He opened his own shop, which was relatively successful. And simultaneously, he was interning with a legendary designer named Paul Rand, who created these iconic logos for everyone from UPS to FedEx to Steve Jobs' company Next. In fact, while working with Paul, Doug got to interview Steve Jobs about his creative process. And we are sharing a little clip of that interview during our conversation. And while all of this was going on, Doug was also indulging in what they call the SAD diet. That's an acronym for the standard American diet. In other words, pizza, hot dogs, French fries, that kind of thing. Meanwhile, he was watching his family members one by one suffer these major lifestyle and diet related diseases and illnesses. And this led Doug to questioning his own health and eventually adopting a clean plant based diet. And then that switch is what inspired the idea for his first food venture, which was Organic Avenue, which Doug operated from his apartment in New York City. It ended up growing to a dozen stores over those next 10 years. And then Doug exited from that company and started his next company, which was a juicing brand called Juicero. And in our conversation, Doug speaks rather candidly about what went right with Juicero as well as what went wrong with that company because it got a lot of negative press at the very end. And this led Doug to going all in on a sprout-based diet and lifestyle. I know, sprout, right? But it's a thing. And Doug is so passionate about sprouts that his social media has blown up over the past few years of him posting about it. His book, which is called The Sprout Book, quickly became a bestseller. And Doug has become the gateway drug, so to speak, for millions of people who are looking for the superfood of all superfoods, but without breaking the bank. And it turns out to be sprouts. Go figure. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. It seems to be all over the place in the beginning, but as you'll see, it all comes together beautifully at the end. So grab yourself some tea, sit back, relax, and get ready to be obsessed with sprouting after listening to my conversation with the legendary Mr. Doug Evans. Doug Evans, thank you so much, brother, for coming on to the show. I'm super excited to dive into your story and then to enlighten my audience about the wonders, the magic, as you call it, of sprouting. Wow. Well, light, I have to say, like the magic of light. Like when I got the email (laughs) and I got the message that you wanted me on the show, I felt like I'd rather be on your show and doing this than anything else in the world right now. Like this is exciting because I love all of our interactions, the walks on the beach, the time at the shine, the phone calls. So this is just great. And I'm glad that we get to have a deep dialogue and other people get to kind of observe and learn and, you know, have a bird's eye view of it. 
Thank you, brother. Yeah, I know we were talking earlier about how we don't talk or see each other that often, but when we do, we tend to have a fairly deep connection. And I believe that there are people in everyone's life like that, or if they're fortunate, right, where you just have these kindred spirits. Do you believe in kindred spirits and things like that? Definitely. I've been through a lot, and there are people that become close to kindred spirits with you, and they become close to you on your ascension, and then the relationship is not rooted as deep as I would have thought it would be, and Mm -hmm. then they like disappear, go dark, as if you were a total stranger or a ghost. What's interesting about people like you, and maybe even I'll put myself in that category, is when we disappear, it's usually because we're creating something, we're birthing something. Because every time I turn around, you know, you're doing something amazing, profound. And that's what I'm interested in talking about during this interview. And I've done the same thing. Like I found the pandemic to be one of my most creative periods. What was your pandemic experience like? My pandemic experience was I was in shock. And The shock part came through with the post-Juicero journey and then doing years of the New York, LA, San Francisco triangle, and then going to my first burn. And then at Burning Man, not necessarily under the influence of anything, but just in the energy of all these creative people in the desert, where there was no exchange of money, where everything was just open, and people were sharing their passions, I felt like, wow, I could live in the desert. Like I felt I could live in the desert. So when I moved to the desert, which was about a year and a half before the pandemic, and Mm -hmm. I pitched my, my yurt, my tent in the desert, and I lived there for three years in the tent. And many people thought like it was crazy. But then when the pandemic hit, it looked <laughs> genius. Right. It looked genius. <laughs> like here, like in LA, people are beating each other up over toilet paper. Right. right? And I'm like using a bidet, soaking in the hot springs eating my own sprouts. And like, I didn't see a mask for months. Like Mm -hmm. I wouldn't go to town and I had no reason to go to town. So I was, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, to me, it seemed like the twilight zone. Like if I ever Mm -hmm. did go to town, I saw everyone with the masks. (laughs) It Mm -hmm. felt like the twilight zone. And I and LA was really intense at the beginning. People were literally wearing hazmat suits to the grocery store with gloves and just like the whole thing standing six feet apart. It was like dystopia. Oh, yeah. And getting their Amazon boxes and having like a demilitarized zone where they're laying yeah. them down and like opening them. It was really a bizarre time. But my pandemic experience was I was just doing my thing. I was reading. Mm-hmm. I was writing. I was growing my sprouts. And it was interesting that during the pandemic is when I did a lot of building at Wonder Valley Hot Springs. Mm -hmm. It was something that a lot of people weren't working. There wasn't a lot to get done. So I was able to 
find many opportunities to build my little, you know, I describe Wonder Valley Hot Springs, where we live today, as part of this triangle, like George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch, mm-hmm. Esalen, and mm-hmm. Burning Man. That was my vision, to have hot springs, to have community, to have housing, you know, where people could come for a day or a week or a month or live here. And be far enough away from the energetic field of the combative urban environment. Like where we live in Wonder Valley, Wonder Valley is 100 square miles with a population of 600 people. Mm -hmm. And when I was in New York, there would be like a thousand people on every floor in the office building. So imagine having 100 square miles, you know, with less than 1,000 people. Did that idea come to you at Burning Man or when you were living in the tent for those years? Burning Man provided a lot of influence, of community, of kind of, I know you live very modestly out of a backpack. You know, a lot of people at Burning Man are moving there as if they're living there forever and they're only going for a week, right? So they're Mm -hmm. hauling all this stuff. For me, Burning Man gave me the possibility is like, oh, I actually can use a porta potty. Mm -hmm. And I was in the army, so it wasn't surprising. And that I didn't need broad bandwidth all the time. And Mm -hmm. there's no cell phone reception there. And you find out like, okay, the time goes by. So Burning Man for me was a challenging experience like doing a 10-day Vipassana. So when I would do Vipassana, very hard not to look at people, but not being connected on the phone and not being able to know what's going on and being able to respond to things. In a way, Burning Man is a different form of dystopia because here you are where there's all this activity, all these people, all this energy, but no connectivity outside of that container. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day. I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. 
That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. You mentioned that you were meditating or you did Vipassana. Was that before all of this? Were you already meditating twice a day, every day, even at Burning Man, even while you were living in the yurt? I did my first 10-day sit in Tamil Nadu in 2004. And then I did another 10-day sit in Sebastopol, probably in 2006 or seven. And Mm -hmm. since then, my Vipassana practice has been 30 minutes a day, every day, once a day. And now I do it in the hot spring. You know, the interesting thing is the hardest thing for Vipassana was the sit. When I'm in the hot spring, I'm kind of floating. So I have to keep my balance. So I'm going back and forth because I don't want to sink. So it keeps me fully present in my body. No phone, no technology. Like I'm just in there with the water and it makes me feel like I'm in the womb. And the time, sometimes it takes forever that 30 minutes. And sometimes it's really quick. But now it's such a habit for me. I get up before six, I go soak, and then I begin my day. And my day might mean exercise, might mean a 5K or 10K run in the desert, or it could mean, you know, a short, you know, and I say short, like beginning of my Vipassana, my Ashtanga practice. So I'll do the beginning of the series, and then I end, and then I go on with my day. I want to go back to the early days, young Doug. You grew up in New York City with Beverly and and Robert Evans and Andrew. Was Andrew older or younger? Older. How much older? Two years older. Okay. So in the shadow of Andrew, essentially, I know what that's like. I grew up with an older brother as well. What was that like in the early days? Talk about whatever philosophies or ideologies that were being circulated in your Jewish household when you were growing up in the city and what you kind of gleaned from that at that point in time. It's interesting because I don't talk about this very frequently. Like, in a way, it was very traumatic and Mm -hmm. inconsistent. And so we're like lower middle income Mm -hmm. and we lived in a marginal neighborhood. And my parents managed to get us on the kindness of a private Hebrew school to go on a quasi scholarship from Mm. first grade through eighth grade. But we would have to take the bus there. And it was in a beautiful place. Like now I can appreciate the beauty it was in near Wave Hill in the Bronx. One of the buildings was the Toscanini Mansion overlooking the Hudson River. I mean, beautiful place with big weeping willow trees. And I didn't appreciate any of that. And we, we had to take one or two buses to get there, you know, and it could be cold, wet, snowy. You know, New York is four seasons for sure. And the other kids in the school, and I'm still friends with several of them to this day, and they were much more affluent 
they may be dropped off either by the nanny or the housekeeper or the parent in a Mercedes. And we're taking the bus and having to walk several blocks to the school. And Mm -hmm. then in the classroom, the curriculum was half English and half Hebrew. And many of these kids came from much more religious households where they took things seriously. And we would get home and our parents didn't, there was incongruency with the religion and what everything else. We would get home and maybe my father was watching sports or something and we didn't do our homework and we didn't say our prayers before and after every meal. And we didn't observe the Sabbath and the other kids would be going to temple and we'd be going to Little League. And there just became a wider and wider gap. I didn't feel like I fit in. Like these were the nicest kids, but I never really felt like I fit in with them. But it wasn't because of them. It was because of me. And Mm -hmm. I ended up just getting into trouble or rebelling and not doing homework, not listening. You know, there's another thing where I didn't wear my glasses. I was prescribed with glasses, but I didn't want to be called four eyes. I mean, the level of misunderstanding and judgment and ego and confusion that I experienced (laughs) as an adolescent and teenager, you know, when I look back on is very confusing, you know, candidly for me. But now I see that there was a method to the madness. You're very mission focused these days. The last few things you've done professionally have been about serving the greater good. Were there any breadcrumbs of that growing up and or what was the idea of success in your household? For instance, in my household, my dad always talked about, you know, you have to be an entrepreneur, you have to start your own business, blah, blah, blah. What was your understanding of success as a young person? I don't think we ever talked about it. I remember my mother telling me that I could do anything, like she planted those seeds that I could do anything. No pun intended, by the way, planted those seeds. <laughs> That's right. There was never a level of like thinking, what did I want to do when I grew up? I thought like in hindsight that there was potential to do some artistic things, like maybe I would be an artist and there was some freedom to do that. I went to high school of music and art. I was surrounded by artists, but some of these artists there had such incredible skill that it was daunting to me as if I was a different species, as if their art and their talent and even their handwriting was at such a different level Mm. than mine that it was incomprehensible. One of your mantras today is, I'll persist until I succeed. What was your work ethic like as a young person? If it was something that I wanted to do, then it was incredibly strong. Like I remember the first snowstorm when I was maybe 10 years old. I remember taking the bus, going to an affluent neighborhood, and my willingness to shovel snow from sunrise to sunset. And it didn't matter how wet I got, how cold I got. 
And it brings up like I try different things. I had this idea that if I poured hot water on the snow, it would melt. <laughs> but I didn't realize that it would then subsequently freeze. Freeze. <laughs> <laughs> bad idea bad yeah. idea you were also a prolific graffiti artist right spraying hundreds of trains hundreds of trains inside and out but it's interesting the other graffiti writers and artists were much more talented than i was like my talent might have been my persistence of willing to go paint with anybody any day any time of day or night and my ability to obtain secure shoplift spray paint in copious amounts, more so than anybody else. So I would find like my little niche to fit in, and I would do that. So you had a bit of a, I guess you described it as a near-death experience in one of those subways yeah. one night that kind of led to you ending up in an army recruiter's office. What was yeah. that experience? Boredom, right? So boredom, self-medicating through negative, questionable activity. So on uh -huh. a Sunday afternoon, I didn't really have any friends. There was nothing really to do exciting. So I was like, oh, I'll take a few cans of paint and I'll go paint my home subway platform. So I wouldn't be too inconvenienced with my boredom. As I was painting the subway train, trains would go by, I would stop. And without getting into the full story, I ended up getting arrested and I ended up escaping. And then I got home and I was bloody. I was beat up. I was dirty. I had like climbed down the bridge with oil and dirt mm. and literally looked like dawn of the dead, like when mm -hmm. I got home. And my mother and my parents, you know, when they weren't raging, were so sweet. And I felt so embarrassed and humiliated. But then I also felt like scared, like, oh, my God, I'm now 17 years old. If I were to be apprehended at this stage for even these seemingly inconsequential crimes, I could be locked up. And that was a scary thought for me. And for whatever insight that I had, my insight said, almost as if I was in a AA meeting. I am powerless over my addiction, that I knew that I was powerless over my inability to stay out of trouble, that I was just attracted to trouble. So that's what led me to the recruiter's office, that here I was, I was 17. I was well aware of my intelligence. So early on, like I was aware that I was smart and that I could do things. And I was also knew that I had no discipline and that I was attracted to bad people, bad things, bad activities. I couldn't just go out to a nightclub for an hour or two. Like if I went out, whether I was drinking or partying or not, we would go out and then we'd go from one club to the next club to the next club 
to after hours clubs and to after after hours clubs because I didn't want to go into the darkness and peace and abyss of sleeping at home in a comfortable bed at a normal time. So you end up in the 82nd Airborne Division. What does that mean if someone doesn't is not familiar with the Army? What does that what does that actually mean in terms um, of yeah. your experience? There are different divisions in the military, right? So on a broad level, you've got Army, Air Force, Marines, then you've got Coast Guard and National Guard, Navy, etc. Within the Army, they have different divisions and different battalions. Some are field artillery, some are tanks. Most of the military is infantry, mm-hmm. right? Where they give you a M16 uh, assault rifle and they let you go. The 82nd Airborne Division was a first deployment unit where they would deploy you by tossing you out of a perfectly good airplane. And so it has a little bit more rigorous training and then a little bit more money because you're you're having to do higher risk things like jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. So the 82nd Airborne, there were two Airborne Divisions. There was a 101st Airborne Division, the 82nd Airborne Division. And because they're flying out of a plane and they could drop a couple hundred troops out of a plane and hope that as they're landing, they're evading ground to air fire, you could place infantry troops wherever you want, where otherwise they're not taking you on the A train and dropping you off on 34th Street. So normally they would have to take buses or trucks or boats and then land. So the Airborne Division, you know, they could fly over and drop you wherever they want you to fight. People say often the Army taught me discipline, confidence, structure, but they don't really ever say how. Can you just talk a little bit about how in your experience, the army was able to take someone like you, a knucklehead looking for trouble and teach yeah. you confidence and discipline? The way that the military did it for me was that they break down your ego, mm-hmm. fear, intimidation, hard labor, and every level of abuse you can think about. So mm-hmm. by breaking down your ego, one thing they do, and you do this consciously, you shave your head. Mm-hmm. I didn't shave my head. Like I liked my hair. My hair was part of my personality. You get to the military, they shave your head. Then I had a big duffel bag with what I thought I would need during my tour of service. And they poured it out on the ground. And the drill sergeant is going through my personal belongings, no privacy. You don't need this. You don't need this. You don't need this. And when I looked up as to like, dude, what are you doing to my shit? I did push-ups. And unlike Light, who's doing voluntary 100 push-ups, 100 pull-ups, 100 burpees, these were involuntary. This is having a big, strong, ugly man yelling at you, give me 50 push-ups. And I'm like, huh? And the more you resist, the more they persist. Mm -hmm. So this first day in the military, my scrawny little body was doing hundreds of push-ups in the snow, cold, wet hands, 
Then they make you wear boots and you're running. And normally, if someone said something to me, when I didn't want to do it, I would ignore them. Like I just ignored all rules, whether right. it was my parent, a school teacher, the train conductor. I just ignored all the rules. And in the military, failure to comply with even a suggestion is a violation of the Uniform Code of Military Justice and could be subject to hard labor. So, <laughs> Which means there, what exactly? You're, you're hitting rocks or? Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. The, the hard labor is if you cross the line there, they will incarcerate you and put you in anything from solitary confinement to a chain gang to working on things. Like after the first day, I said to my drill sergeant, I said, I think you've got the wrong guy. Like I'm done. My experience of the military prior to being in the military was Private Benjamin, Right. right? Which was a joke. Right. Goldie Hawn was a joke. It was a whole joke. And there's nothing funny in the military. Like no one wants to hear my jokes. Like you cannot be a class clown in the military without seriously suffering. So he looks at me and he says, there is no way out. Wow. And I'm like, huh? Because I'm used to finding a way out. And he goes, there are no bars on the window. The campus isn't barbed wire to keep you in. But if you leave, you're going to be a fugitive and they will find you and then you will be locked up. So you have no choice. Get the fuck out of my office. And like that was, you know, okay. There are guys like David Goggins who like want the abuse. They want it. I didn't want it. I was done. I wanted out. But I had to subject myself to like, I grew up, I never did laundry. We never did chores in the house. I never washed dishes. And here in the military, you're constantly like everything that you have is exactly as the guy next to you. They would give you a chart that showed you how your socks needed to be rolled and stored, how your underwear needed to be folded. So if you were to open up everyone's like little footlocker, they would all be the same. You'd have to make your bed tight as if they dropped a quarter on it, it would bounce up. And this was madness, but you really don't have a choice. So you just suck it up. And then if you suck it up and you do it long enough, it becomes a habit and it effectively and ostensibly breaks down that ego. And that's how you learn discipline. I love that story. Can we fast forward along now a little bit? So you're out of the military, you're now disciplined, you're now confident, you're now working in graphic design. And you decide to go to Paul Rand's house in Connecticut. So talk about the moment just before that. Like, What gave you the confidence to go to Paul Rand's house and who's 70 years old, one man show, and offer to volunteer your time for indefinitely? 
one of the things you learn in the military is that we're all equal, okay. right? You know, I, I'm sure there's racism and prejudice in the military, and I experienced a little, but what you really learn is that everyone has to take off their pants one leg at a time. You have to poop. You have to do things. It's a very humiliating but open, heart-opening experience as you're with other like-minded souls or not like-minded souls, you're there. But the idea that someone was higher than me in the hierarchy, whether it was a business tycoon or an artist or someone else, like to me, everyone was just equal. Like I could talk to anybody. I had no fear of speaking uh-huh. to someone. So I had never heard of Paul Rand until I went to Barnes and Noble in Union Square and I found one of his books on graphic design because graphic design was, in my opinion, a legitimate vocation based on something similar or analogous to graffiti. It's like, oh, logical progression, graffiti, graphic design. And so I called Paul Rand. I got his phone number from the Type Directors Club. And he answered his own phone. Hmm. And he was like, well, what do you want? And I was like, I was a graffiti writer. I want to become a graphic designer. I'd love to meet you. I want to show you my portfolio of my work. And he was marginally polite. And then after several phone calls, he said, okay, next time I come into New York City, you know, I'll give you a call. I'll meet with you. And then several weeks went by and he never called. And then there was a sighting of Paul Rand at one of these art director clubs or something else. And someone had mentioned that Paul was there. And this infuriated me because I felt that this man had given me his word that when he was in New York, that he was going to call me and that we were going to get together. So I called him up. I said, Mr. Rand, I understand you were in New York yesterday and you didn't call. So you must be really busy. I'm just going to have to come to see you. And in many cases in Paul's relationship, he was always part in shock and part mortified by my behavior, but he also loved me. So Mm -hmm. I, I told him I was coming and he didn't say not to. And I made my way to his house. And I remember sitting like on a stool, almost as if I was a spectacle. And his wife was sitting there watching the interaction with me and Paul. And he's sitting in a comfortable chair. I'm on the stool. His wife is in a different chair. And I'm sitting there for like three hours. And at one point I said, excuse me, Mr. Rand, may I use the toilet? And he looks at me and he looks at his wife and he goes, go shit in your own house. (laughs) (laughs) And like, he was just playing. And I was like, no, okay, I'll just hold it in. <laughs> and I didn't ha- I didn't have to take a shit. Like I just needed to pee. But it was mm-hmm. just like he liked to play. When I did talk to him of why I wanted to work for him, you know, for free indefinitely, was he taught the master's program at Yale, which had like 25 students. And all of those students would leave that program and go work at like the biggest corporations or the biggest design studios. And they would all go on to become something like it was Mm -hmm. very hard 
expensive program to get into. And I didn't have an undergraduate degree. So there was no way I was going to the program, nor did I have like whatever it cost $100,000 a year to go to, to Yale at the time. So I was funny. I said, Mr. Rand, the close, because I said, I really want to learn from you. He goes, I teach at Yale. And I said, well, Mr. Rand, the closest I get to Yale was I go to the Yale club near Grand Central and I eat hors d'oeuvres on Thursday. <laughs> and he just laughed. And I said, look, I don't need the money. I've got money. I just want to work. I'll do anything. And so part of the salesmanship was my willingness to do whatever it took to be around Paul. What was your commitment, your time commitment for your self-imposed internship? It could be anywhere from 30 to 80 hours a week. Wow. So you were making money with your regular graphic design? Some, a little on my regular graphic job, most on like side hustles. Like Mm -hmm. I would busboy in an after hours club. I would work security in a nightclub. I would just do other things in order to make money so that I continue to spend time with Paul. It's hard to imagine, but it's like every minute that I was with Paul felt like it was heaven. He was such a genius and he was such a deep thinker. And we would always have really complex conversations. And he would talk to me about his other complex conversations or business issues or design issues or his curriculum. So I was exposed to this mind of this genius. And Mm -hmm. there was never two days that were the same. I went there open-ended, not knowing Mm -hmm. what was going to happen. But at some point, it was just like, oh, that's my habit. Like, this is my karate kid, wax on, wax off moment is with Paul. And the more I was with him, the more I appreciated his work and who he was. Like in the beginning, I didn't really understand his graphic design. It was so simple that to me, it's like, you know, a novice criticizing the Matisse blue paper, you know, cut paper things thinking like, oh, that's so simple. Anyone could do that not realizing the thought process. But as I started to see how Paul would take a design challenge and really seek to understand the business, the audience, the CEO or the entrepreneur, and look at this art problem as a business problem that needed to be solved using graphic design, that was incredibly fascinating to me. and. I had a front row seat of this genius and Mm. who's working with other geniuses. And Mm. when I met Paul, he was right in the mix of doing the next corporate identity for Steve Jobs. So I'm like right in there and seeing how Steve would make his requests, how Paul would do his things, how Steve was then pushing it. Like, and as genius as Paul was. Paul was very focused in what he would do. So Paul did the logo and then the type. Mm -hmm. But then when it came to the advertising, Steve went to Ralph Amirati, who did the BMW ad campaigns. So Mm -hmm. the original next 
ad campaign was very similar to a BMW campaign. And Steve had multiples, I don't know how many, of the same BMW. That was his vehicle. And he had multiples of the similar cars, but he loved the BMW experience. He loved the Porsche. He loved to drive. And he appreciated the quality and the nuance, which to me, I had never been in a BMW. And I couldn't appreciate it. But hearing Paul, and because of my naivete, whatever Paul told me to do, I would do. And almost invariably, whatever I did was wrong. And I would have to keep doing it over and over and over again. And I can send you a link to some artwork where Paul would send me, like I have copies of faxes where he would send them to me at two in the morning. And there was one follow-up where he sent me a message when he goes, you must be dead or something because I didn't respond fast enough to his changes. Hold on. I'm going to see if I can find this. Just bear, bear with me a second. While you're looking for that, there's an anecdote about Paul Rand that I love about Paul dealing with Steve Jobs. And apparently he showed him the design for the next logo and Steve wanted options. And Paul says, I don't do options. My job is to solve your problem. You can use it or you don't have to use it, but I'm not going to give you more options. Were you there yeah, for that? I was. I was very close to that. As a matter of fact, you can find an interview that I did in 1993 that I mm -hmm. posted on YouTube with Steve Jobs, where I'm interviewing Steve and he described no that experience. Oh, wow. That's you interviewing him? Me, yeah, me interviewing Steve. And is that on YouTube or is that that's uh, on, YouTube. on an article? Okay. No, that's, on, that's on YouTube. I think wow. I posted it sometime in 2000. And, um, we'll link to it in the show notes for those who are interested in checking that out. Like, can okay, I share bro. my screen? Yeah. Yeah, there we go. I had <laughs> seen a lot of his work, but didn't know too much about him. And when we were starting our, uh, our quest for what our corporate identity was going to be, a person that we had in-house gave me a few of his books and, and articles to read. And I got up to speed on who, you know, who he was and the, the immense body of his work, which I wasn't familiar with at the time. Was he the first designer that you approached? He was the only one we approached. He said he'd love to do it. So he came out and visited us several times at Next and got to know the company and the people. And uh, I think uh, solved a very difficult problem for us. The problem he solved was generally most companies have their logo as just a logo type. And every once in a while, a company has a logo that's sort of a little jewel, a symbol that can be used independently of the logo type. And at Apple, we had such a symbol. As a matter of fact, at Apple, it was very rare because the symbol was the name of the company. It was a thing that had the same name as the company in Apple. Our challenge was that usually it takes, you know, 10 years and $100 million to associate a symbol with the name of the company. Our challenge was how could we have a little jewel that we could use without the name to put on the product, et cetera, without spending, you know, $100 million in 10 years to make that association in the customer's mind. And Paul solved that by making us a little jewel that had contained in it the name of the company. And I think that he really approached it as a problem that had to be solved, not an artistic challenge for its own sake. What was he like to work with? <laughs> Paul's a gem. I think he personally kind of works on perfecting the exterior of kind of a curmudgeon. 
I think he's perfected it to new heights, actually. I think it's his way of dealing with the part of the world that he doesn't necessarily want to deal with. I found him to be extremely bright and really have a heart of gold. When I think of Paul, I think of a slightly tough exterior and a, and a teddy bear inside. But in particular, working with him, he is one of the most professional people I've ever worked with in the sense that he thought through all of the formal relationship between a client and a professional such as himself. Obviously, very deep thoughts about this. And therefore, he had very clear conclusions about what the relationship meant to, to, to both parties and how it should be conducted. For example, I asked him if he would come up with a few options. And he said, no, I will solve your problem for you. And you will pay me. And you don't have to use the solution. If you want options, go talk to other people. But I'll solve your problem for you the best way I know how. And you use it or not, that's up to you. You're the client, but you pay me. And there was a clarity about the relationship that was refreshing. And again, obviously the result of thinking about that relationship for, for many years or decades. And it was evident in several types of things that came up throughout the relationship. Genius. Yeah, so Walter Isaacson, in the Jobs biography, this is a quote. Like he's referencing this interview that, that I did with, with Steve. Like it, it goes back that far. So it was really part of history. And, you know, there was no way that I would have met Steve other than that at that time. Mm -hmm. Right. It was, wasn't an option. So that was, you know, really good times. And I'm going to, I have something else that's just kind of funny. So these are faxes that I got from Paul that, that are really funny. Now hmm. try screwing this one up. <laughs> and look, this is 6.15 p.m., right? 18.15, 6.15 p.m. So he's that, helping you out with your own logo? Is that what that yeah, is? Yeah, helping me out with my, my own logo. And then I got another one. Your typographic skills are less than minimal. <laughs> so it was something that there was a, a true love, like he knew I could handle it, so he would pour it on. I love that story. I love that relationship. And he ended up passing away, obviously. So at this point in your life, you're working with a true master. Meanwhile, you're eating the standard American diet and everything that comes along with that. Your family's starting to have some health challenges. So let's walk us through what that experience was like leading up to you meeting Denise. Watching water boil happens really slowly, <laughs> right? So everyone around me was eating cooked food, processed food, meat, chicken, fish, dairy, Chinese food, soul food, pizza, Italian food, Greek food. Like we just ate. Like the idea of food was somewhat a reward system once I became financially quasi-independent, where I could afford to eat in a restaurant. And like I wasn't eating in Michelin star restaurants, but I could afford to go to a steakhouse, or I could get a hot dog in the street, or I could go to a nice Chinese restaurant. And we just ate. 
And then the first kind of clue that something was wrong with the diet was when my aunt got diabetes and we were told that they were going to have to chop off her feet below her ankles, like a double amputation. I guess I was just around 30 or so when that happened. It's incomprehensible to me to envisioned what it would be like. Like now we could see like guys like Stephen Hawking had incredible lives using his brain and little things with little faculty. And there's people at the time for me to just think about someone close to me losing their feet was a very, very hard thing to process. And then ultimately she died of complications associated with diabetes after the amputation. And then my uncle died of heart disease. And then my other uncle died of heart disease. And then my mother got stomach cancer and died. And it was like within three months, like I thought maybe she had an ulcer or had something else or, or, you know, whatever, like a kid who doesn't want his mother to die is thinking, but we were in definitive denial that she was dying. And she like went downhill and she died. And then my father died of heart disease in the same hospital as my mother. And then my brother, who was less active than me, my older brother, ended up becoming overweight, obese, having the first of three strokes and a heart attack. And then I met Denise. At a nightclub at two in the morning. At two in the morning, yeah. And I was still like just out there, you know, not wanting to go home. You know, it's like that movie Repo Man. Like, where could we go next? And she tells you about this funny type of diet. Denise was vegetarian going vegan. Mm -hmm. And I had never heard of vegan. And I had known vegetarians. I actually, it was really powerful for me. I just did a class with John Robbins, who wrote Diet for a New America. And someone had given me his book 10 years before I became vegetarian or vegan. And I opened up the book and it talked about all these atrocities to the animals. And I closed up the book and I stored it on my shelf with the book cover spine on the inside. So you would only see the paper because there was something haunting in the words of that book that I didn't want to read. That was the expression, the blinders on, the cognitive dissidence of not wanting to know. And so I could continue life as it was without having to face the atrocities that I was directly or indirectly participating in. How did this lead to you co-founding Organic Avenue with Denise? I really was attracted to Denise. And we ended up spending a lot of time together. And then we became a couple. And Denise was working as a speech language pathologist at United Cerebral Palsy. And so she had like, her heart was into helping people. And she was very loving, very compassionate. Her sister died of leukemia when she was seven. And Denise was commuting from my apartment in the West Village to Long Island to go to United Cerebral Palsy. And Mm. so 
I said, look, why don't you do something that you're passionate about? So she was exploring like doing tofu cheesecakes or doing like the beginning of e-commerce for different natural products. And then I moved into a loft space in Chinatown. And in there, we said, well, maybe we'll have some potlucks and we'll invite people over. Maybe we'll have like a movie night and we'll show conscious movies, who killed the electric car or the like. And when we would come over and then we would do these dinner port, it turns out the potlucks were a bomb because people wouldn't bring high enough quality food to work. So then we said, well, maybe we'll bring in a chef. So Denise went to the raw food festival in Oregon and recruited top raw chefs to come. And then we would have dinner parties. And then, you know, we learned about juice. We learned about raw food. We started to buy products. So when people came over, they could take some product with them and go home. And then that became the genesis of Organic Avenue. And you were operating the whole thing from your loft in Chinatown, correct? Yeah, for a couple of years. Until we had so much inventory and no foot traffic, the only time people could come is when we invited them or had an event or something. And mm-hmm. then to me, we had more inventory than it cost for rent. So it made <laughs> sense like, oh, we'll get a store and then work in the store and then you could get foot traffic and be available and make it a thing. This is 2002 and the idea of opening up a store in Manhattan seems very costly. What was your financial situation at the time? How were you able to make that happen? I was always working, always saving money and uh-huh. like very calculated. Like I remember we furnished the store with furniture from Ikea and we bought the absolute necessities. Like we went to the garment district and we found some glass shelves and racks and We found like a handyman to help put them together. And we sanded the original wood floors. And we did things in a very scrappy, entrepreneurial way. I remember the beautifully minimal orange branding. Did you design that? I did not. A different Rand student did. Interesting. (laughs) And I, I didn't have the talent. And he was really not very good for my confidence regarding my design. It was good right. for my confidence in execution, but mm-hmm. not in the design. So I found another Rand student friend of mine that I trusted who did this every day mm-hmm. that I thought would be able to embody what Paul would think was good. And this was your first exposure to Sprouts. You mentioned in the book, the Sprout guy would come and deliver the Sprouts from upstate New York. Yeah, we got that. And I was probably exposed to the sprouts a little bit even earlier than that in the Uh, farmer's market. But we would get sprouts delivered and wheatgrass delivered by some guy named Harley. It was just such a seemingly different lifetime when I think about how many years ago, like two decades, over two years ago, seems like a long time. And you said that business grew 100% a year and you exited and 10 years later. So were you financially, quote, free at that moment in time where you could pretty much do whatever you wanted to do? 
to a certain extent, everything is relative. For my lifestyle, yes, right? Because I could buy, I could buy raw food, I could go where I wanted to go. And I never got hooked on the trappings. Like I didn't want debt. Like to me, fancy cars would be more anxiety. Like where are you going to park them? Now you're going to have to get a garage. What if someone scratches them? So I really think the automobiles were not designed for utility as much as they were for ego. So I didn't want to be stuck in that trap. Like I had an aversion to the trappings of fancy and material things, even back then, whether I could afford them or not. And then there was the Juicero era where it was a five-year-long thing. You kind of glossed over that in the book. What do people get wrong about Juicero? I mean, what they got wrong was it was all the writings and all the things were all about a mockery of Silicon Valley and a mockery Mm -hmm. of me and this machine that you could squeeze the pack by hand. Mm -hmm. When in fact, I had 10 years of making juice by hand, right? Mm -hmm using semi-mechanical advances to make juice. So I knew a lot about making juice. And one of the observations that I had was that unsweetened green juice, or even green juice that was sweetened, was the best possible, healthiest beverage option one could have other than spring water. And if you look at the alternatives to beverages that people could have, Beer, wine, soda, energy drinks, highly processed juices from concentrated that were pasteurized, or making fresh juice in a juicer. So anecdotally, people who had a home juicer were maybe using them once or twice a month. But people who had an espresso machine were using it once or twice a day. And you could say, well, you could just go buy a bottle of juice from the grocery store. So it turns out that there is a federal law that makes it illegal to sell raw juice over interstate lines or in retail. Like if you're selling juice on a shelf in a supermarket and you're not making that juice in that store, it must be pasteurized, which means They are either cooking it to kill the microbial activity by 5 million to one, or they're putting so much cold pressure on it to kill all the microbial activity 5 million to one. So Mm -hmm. for me, as a raw vegan, I wanted raw juice. So we resisted doing the processed pasteurized juice. My insight was that the way you make cold pressed juice was that you take the produce, you triple wash it, then you dice it, slice it, grind it, shred it, so that you're opening up all the cell walls of the fiber so that you then can put into a piece of cheesecloth and then separate the juice from the fiber. And if you couldn't squeeze juice out of the pack by hand, then there would be something wrong with that pack. It had to be. But the fact was, it was mostly fresh cut produce and maybe some free liquid. 
But if you think about the dexterity and faculty of these hands in combined with your eyes and the senses, you could easily ring it, but you'd have to invest two minutes into ringing it like you would a towel. Mm -hmm. And I, of course, as well as anyone who was in the juicing business, we could go watch a little video of Norwalk Juicer and you could see their process. And the Norwalk Juicer was $2,500. At Organic Avenue, we started with one Norwalk Juicer. Then we got a second one and a third one and a fourth one and a fifth one. And those would cost $2,500 each. And so my vision was, if you bought a Norwalk for $2,500, you still had to do buy the produce, wash the produce, make the juice, then clean the juicer. So the idea was, if you could take the product of the grinding shredding, putting it into a cheesecloth bag, and then the patent said, you take that cheesecloth bag with the produce, you put it into another bag that has a spout, you could then insert that into a Juicero press, or if you wanted to spend three times the amount, put into a Norwalk press, and it would press out the juice. That was the idea of Juicero. And what happened was if we were creating a solar farm and raised $100 million, no one would even write a press release. If Starbucks was creating a new coffee grinding plant for $100 million, no one cares. When you get a, a guy from New York who is running a lemonade stand and he goes to Silicon Valley and big investors, Google and Kleiner Perkins and big people invest, then all of a sudden you're on the radar. You're just on the radar and you have a target. Then a series of mistakes, you know, good things happen. So this is the great part about you, Sarah. I came up with an idea that was creative out of the box, had never been done before. I wrote some patents. So we got 40 patents. I hired a bunch of teams. I went to Canal Street. I had a Chinese kitchen place that I knew from my Organic Avenue days, build me my first prototype so I could take the produce, put in cheesecloth, put in a Ziploc bag, put in my early Juicero Preston, and you were getting the best juice ever. There was very little between the first machine I made and the 20th version that shipped. Mm -hmm. And then I went to Silicon Valley and I raised $120 million. And then we hired 50 engineers, nine food scientists, quality experts, 12 PhDs in electrical engineering and packaging and firmware and software. and you know, I'm not patting myself on the back, but we sold thousands of machines. We sold over 1 million servings in our first year. The mm -hmm. business was doing a million dollars a month and growing. And so from my perspective, I was like, wow, that was really great. Now, I made some mistakes. And one mistake was I wasn't meditating enough. <laughs> I was working seven days a week. I was still, you know, listening to everyone the, on the board as if they were my drill sergeants, wanting to please them, et cetera. 
And then when they suggested that the company bring in a new CEO, who was the former chief operating officer of Coca-Cola, and you know the way they painted that picture was very glorified, like, Doug, you can design the trains, he'll make them run on time, he knows about leadership and raising capital and building teams and scaling globally and retail and all of these things. And I was like, if you guys think this is the right thing to do, then I'm on the team. I'll agree with that. And to all founders out there, when you are a founder CEO, and then you are no longer the CEO, you're just a founder, it's possible that all of your authority can be removed and you become like a figurehead and something just off in the side. And to me, that was the beginning and the end of the company. And nine months later, they shut Juicero down. Much to my sadness and much to what I learned is that that happened for me. Mm -hmm. I'm not a victim. No one made this thing come up and put a gun to my head. These were the decisions that I made based on my prior historical trauma, my military experience, my design and my opportunistic and my desire to please and my not taking breaths and me just wanting to work and work and follow this path. And turns out, you know, that was a decision that I made that should have required more thoughtfulness and more reflection. And Juicero got composted. And what emerged from the compost was this idea for Sprouts. Was that revelation relatively immediate or did it take some time for you to get there? Maybe another one of those Vipassana trainings or something for, in order for you to really embody that sense of, hey, this happened for me and not to me. It took probably years and it, I'm still processing. That. <laughs> okay, that's honest. So I'm still processing that. I think yeah. at the time it was more shock. I was pouring my heart into this every day. Whatever the advisors or the board were telling me to do, I was doing. Mm. Like I could be combative. But in this case, with the board, I was never combative. I was so agreeable because mm-hmm. they were doing things that were defying gravity, like mm-hmm. you know, at every step of the way. Like what we launched was an incredible product. And the greatest part of that story for me, the Juicero experience, was my original vision was that people used an espresso machine once or twice a day. People were using their Juicero machine once or twice a day. And the people who were drinking soda, energy drinks, processed juice, coffee, who will never drink cold-pressed green juice, they weren't our audience and they were the haters. And Mm -hmm. there was much more of them than us. And unlike what I'm doing now with launching a movement for Sprouts, I had a few hundred followers on Twitter. I had 3,000 followers on Instagram. I had no presence. All of my sales and all of my work was focused on recruiting people to the company and raising capital. So Mm -hmm. I did not have an outward-facing community aspect to anyone to defend anything that I did. And so the misinformation that was out there relative to Juicero 
was beyond my wildest dreams. I, I couldn't believe that legitimate media organizations were telling half-truths and exaggerating them and could be so out of integrity. Like I had never experienced that Machiavellian malice because of my meditation and my lifestyle. Like I don't read the newspaper. I don't read the gossip parts. So I never even understood the notion of clickbait. It just mm-hmm. wasn't in my stratosphere. And that just, you know, drove things. But if they got anything wrong, which was your question, and this was a long circuitous answer, people thought Juicero was about the money and that it was about fake. And mm-hmm. what I can say is it wasn't about the money and Juicero was real as anything and was had its great utility. And what it was for me was an opportunity to close the gap of fresh produce, that mm-hmm. the U.S. dietary guidelines were recommending that people consume seven to 13 servings of fruits and vegetables every day. And the average American was consuming less than one. And that one serving that they had could have been French fries. So to me, the idea to make it easier for people to have a fresh, raw, unpasteurized juice without setup, without cleanup, even if it costs a lot of money, who cares? Like we live in a society where you can fly to Mexico on Volaris, on United, on NetJets, a private jet, what have you. And that same flight from Mexico City to LA could cost $69 to $69 a second if you were flying a charter G5 to go there. And people have the right. So the fact that the juicer was expensive, the version one was expensive, like we weren't forcing people to buy it. Like the people who bought it loved it. But it was such an education to understand how. You could be doing all the right things. Like if anyone would have asked me what could go wrong with Juicero, I would have said someone could get sick. You're doing raw Mm -hmm. produce. You're doing raw juice. You're on the fringe of non-pasteurizing part that someone could get sick. And if someone gets sick, that's really bad. I never would have thought it would have been like some farce of a financial escapade that would bring the company down. And I I was just on the phone yesterday with a major entrepreneur, executive investor. And we were talking about Sprouts and we were talking about Juicero and every aspect of Juicero he loved. He's like, I loved my Juicero. I loved using it. I love the convenience. I love the design. Doug, you did a great job. And For him, in my mind, because of all the evisceration in the media, I thought like I should duck my head in the sand and never come out. And then there are people who I respect, who love the machine, who love the product, and Mm -hmm. are like, Doug, it's not the critic who counts. It's the man who gets in the ring. So when I realized like I got in the ring, I actually did a really good job for my first time in the ring in Silicon Valley, right? Going from, you know, you look at my career, I was a 
graffiti writer. Then I was a paratrooper. Then I was a graphic design intern. And then I did some different jobs. And then I ended up running a juice bar, which is pretty low tech. Although I did program the website, I did design spreadsheets to manage logistics where we could do thousands of deliveries a day and our e-commerce stuff, but it was still like low tech stuff. We weren't really inventing things, but then to go to Silicon Valley and actually invent something that was a combination of hardware, software, packaging, fresh produce, you know, connected things like this was a lot of brain expansion part new materials, stretching my imagination and my brain and my skill set exponentially, simultaneously in multiple directions and recruiting and capital raising and investor relations. And who trains you how to run a board meeting? It's not like I went to Harvard Business School and, (laughs) and had any training whatsoever. So the fact like I went there and I look at it and I go, wow, you know, in the whole scheme of things, I'm pretty proud of myself. My ego's not out of control. The business was shut down. Clearly, I was responsible for everything that happened. And now, if I get to do something else, look at those lessons. Like, I read a lot of books. I didn't read the lessons of how to prevent these things. I read different lessons of what to do, but everyone's life journey is different and the circumstances of which they're exposed to are different. So the best thing that you could do is be influenced by what other people are doing, but then really reflect on my own experiences and see how could I apply them to whatever I'm doing next. Speaking of which, I mean, it sounds like you're very, and maybe the general public did not realize this, but how mission focused you actually were because, you know, our mutual friend, Amanda from Moon Juice, she kind of had the same thing. You know, she got caught up in that sort of the perception of, oh, this is for the affluent. So let's make fun of it. Let's stereotype it. Let's caricaturize it. So when you get caught up in that, then it, yeah, it becomes about something completely different than what your original purpose is in relationship to all of that. And you're asking this question after the fact, which is what would serve the world better at a fraction of the cost of a Juicero machine, even though that is at a fraction of a cost compared to a Norwalk machine, which obviously the media ignores. But what were the answers that came to you and how did you land on going all in Because I don't know anybody who's more in on sprouts than you are. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you and I went to Air One together, but I know we've both been probably in Air One in the same day, in the same year, in the same store. So on one of my last trips to Air One, I filled up a big Yeti-like cooler, an Arctic cooler, 60-liter cooler, with all this prepared gourmet raw vegan food, fresh produce, et cetera, fill up the the cooler, come out to Joshua Tree, come out to Wonder Valley Hot Springs. I go into my yurt and I'm fine. I've got the Milky Way. I've got the hot springs. I got the stars. You know, I feel grounded. 
I don't have a cement floor in the yard. It's like I'm grounded. And the next day, as I go into the cooler, the ice packs are melting and the food supply is dwindling. So I go onto my phone. My favorite app was Happy Cow. Go anywhere in the world, go to Happy Cow. And I do vegan, nothing. Do vegetarian, nothing. Do veg friendly, nothing. (laughs) And the things that were close to me were Del Taco, 7-Eleven, Burger King. And then when I used Google Maps and I ultimately found the Whole Foods in La Quinta was like an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and a half away. So I suck it up. I get in the car and I'm like, this is not why I moved to the desert to be driving all this distance. So that night, I'm soaking in the hot springs, looking up at the stars in the Milky Way, may or may not have been hallucinating, and seeing every star twinkling into a sprouting tail. Mm. And I'm like, no, really? Wow. And I'm getting this download from the the heavens, from the skies, from the universe, that number one, sprouts were vegetables. Number two, those vegetables contained every micronutrient, phytonutrient, polyphenol, bioflavonoid, antioxidant, amino acid for complete proteins as mature vegetables, all in the sprouts. And number three, sprouts had medicinal properties. I had no idea that those medicinal properties were backed by thousands of published white papers by top universities and scientists around the world. This was just coming to me like, oh, sprouts were medicine. So the next morning, I'm really excited. I go online and I see that there's many more options in 2018 than there were in 1999 to 2002, that now you could get alfalfa, azuki, arugula, radish, clover, broccoli, chia, mustard, fenugreek, all sorts of lentils, all sorts of peas, all sorts of strains of hemp seeds that would sprout in their hulls. And I was like, wow. So within a month, I've got six jars in rotation. And I'm growing thousands of calories of vegetables in days, not weeks, months, or years for like under a dollar a serving, aka pennies a serving. I'm feeling light, energetic, alive, satiated, bright and clear. And I'm like, wow, this is too good to be true. Like, this is unbelievable. Within a month, basically, I'm eating sprouts. What was your go-to meal? Because, you know, you're a guy, and we, we like the systems and processes, doing the same thing, the thing that works. What was your go-to meal back in those early days with the sprouts? Or were you just grabbing a handful of them and stuffing them in your mouth? I mean, I had a rotation of jars going, mm-hmm. and I would take handfuls of these and originally just eat them raw out of the jars. 
So mm. I was sprouting garbanzo beans. I was sprouting green peas, lentils, alfalfa sprouts, broccoli sprouts. And then I would get these salad mixes and protein mixes. And I was just rotating these. And then I had these little terracotta trays and I was growing chia and flax sprouts in there for my omega-3s. And I would just eat, like I also intermittent fast. So I only eat between noon and at the time, noon and six. Now I extended my eat time until 7 p.m. And so I would eat as many sprouts as I wanted until I was content. But the absence of adding salt, oil, or sugar meant there was no overeating. You can't overeat sprouts plain. Like you eat them if you're hungry. And intellectually, I knew I won't eat this in this moment, then I'm not really hungry. Maybe I'm emotionally eating, maybe I'm something else, but if I'm hungry, I would eat this. Mm-hmm. So if someone's hungry and you gave them a head of raw broccoli, they'd eat the whole thing. They might even bite your fingers off. If they're carrying extra weight and they're eating for pleasure and they're living to eat, and you say, here's some raw broccoli, they're going to be like, no way, get away from me. And that's how you know if someone's really hungry or not. Were you thinking at the time, how do I convert this into the next organic avenue, the sprout version of this, or the next juicero, the sprout version of this? Or what was that thinking like in terms of how do I spread this? What I thought was, let me see what books are written on sprouting. So that's when I went online and there were historical books written by Ann Wigmore and Victoris Kovinskas and Steve Meyerwitz. And there were some books written about sprouts, but all of them were a minimum of 10 years old. And the approach that they took was very earthy, hippie niche. And having done that New York, LA, San Francisco triangle, having gone through Juicero, um, thinking about the mindset of all the people who would go to the shine. Like I felt like there was an opportunity to elaborate and expand on the prior work on Sprouts to include my lens on Sprouts, my experience on Sprouts, and details of other Sprouts that hadn't been written about back then you know, like the azuki and the radish and the clover and the broccoli, like people weren't eating broccoli sprouts 10 and 20 years ago. It's a relatively new thing. So I just felt like my next step was to go to New York, leave my compound, go to New York, pitch a publisher and basically sell them the Sprout Manifesto or the Sprout book so that we could share this information. And I wanted to be on a major publisher because I won the distribution and I won the credibility. And I won to, you know, people have access to this. And so two and a half years later, the Sprout book hit number one bestseller vegetarian book on Amazon. Out of all books on Amazon, hit number 69 out of like 3 million books on Amazon, on Sprouts. 
talk about the pitch though, because that was a funny, that was a great story. You went in there one meeting. How did you, and you obviously your favorite book is the greatest salesman in the world. What do you say to get a publisher to do a book on Sprouts? Well, for one, I let the Sprouts speak. You brought Sprouts. I brought Sprouts, all these different Sprouts. And then I went to a friend of mine who was a recipe developer. She developed the recipes for Layla Ali's book and for Oprah Winfrey's book. And I said, I want to do recipes with Sprouts that are all vegan, all raw, and 50% are Sprout based. Mm-hmm. And so she worked with me on the recipes. We found a friend of hers who was a chef who mm-hmm. prepared the, the, the various dishes. And I grew the sprouts. And I went in with this sprout smorgasbord. And the editor was literally eating out of the palm of my hand. And she said, Doug, how big do you think the market is for sprouts? How many people are sprouts? Like I've heard about sprouts. You know, they were in like the Woody Allen movie. Annie Hall, you know, hippies have them. And I was like, you don't understand. Sprouts solve so many problems. Like we could solve world hunger with sprouts. There's 19,500 cities in America. There's only 500 whole foods, right? The majority of those whole foods are in LA and New York and in Texas. So you probably have 19,000 you know, 400 cities that don't have a whole foods in it and that people don't have access to organic vegetables. So the fact that you could grow your own sprouts in days for pennies a serving without soil, without sunshine, without fertilizer, everyone needs to know this information. Like this is sovereignty. This is independence. This is food equality, food justice. And like I was emphatic my level of enthusiasm was off the charts. It was like I was full throttle 100% from the time the meeting began till the time the meeting ended. You've done a ton of interviews talking about all the benefits of sprouts, what the best sprouts are. You don't have a favorite, but broccoli sprouts have the highest form of cancer prevention, blah, blah, blah. So I don't want to go too much into that. But what I am curious about is you are prolifically posting on your social media. And I'm wondering who's helping you, who's doing that for you, or are you doing all that yourself? My Instagram broke through 100,000. Yeah, I saw that. And it took years. Like it took, Uh like I went, it took years. My TikTok broke through like in six weeks. I went from Uh zero to 100,000. I got a million two likes. I got 20 million views. Like the the engagement was incredible. All of the Instagram stuff is basically me or my wife shooting it and Uh putting it out there. And I have a tripod, you know, next to the sink. No, no, no. My, my wife will follow, or I will get anybody who's near me to take the camera and shoot. You go in and put the titles and all that stuff in it? Yeah, yeah. I I downloaded Rush on the iPhone so I can edit the videos and then I post them and I'm still figuring it out. But are you formulaic with it? Like I'm posting every day before no, such no. and such time. No, I gotta I gotta feel like inspired, you know, to have mm-hmm. something. And then I take some feedback, like, oh wow, the the video I did with the broccoli sprouts, this one 
when like it's kind of crazy. Like over 10 of my videos on TikTok went viral with over a million views. Right. And on Instagram, a dozen went viral at different degrees. And so I'll look at that and say, oh, this influenced people a lot. This got shared a lot. And then you figure out, and if you think you have any clue about the algorithm, because uh-huh. I, I could do the same thing that I did that worked, and it'll be a wet blanket, like a lead balloon. Like I can right. do the exact thing. I think I have the formula. I think I understand it. And it's like no response, but I don't care. Like I just, right. like, I was like, I'll just post something else and I'll go something else. I do have one question to ask about something you said. I heard, I think you, I, I read it or you said it in another interview, but I thought it was really interesting. So when people hear, people who are non-vegan vegetarian hear that someone is vegan vegetarian and then that they're really enthusiastic about it and you start talking about the studies and whatnot, people naturally roll their eyes and goes, well, how does they get their protein? And I'm, you said, you're asking the wrong question. You need to be asking, how am I getting my fiber? Talk yes. a little bit about that. Well, it's actually, I have two canned responses to when someone asks, where am I get the protein? One is like, where did you get that question? Like, are you a nutritionist? Like, where are you getting that question? Like, who is eating your mind with that question, right? Mm -hmm. But the other one is, where do you get your fiber from? You know, about 95% of America is fiber deficient because fiber only exists in plants. So most people, if they're not eating a lot of fruits and vegetables, they're not getting a lot of fiber, which results in several things. Number one, constipation. Number two, anti-acids and indigestions and acid reflux. And number three, chronic health issues. We have two out of three Americans are overweight or obese. We have tens of millions of people that are adult onset diabetic. We have 90 plus people that are pre-diabetic, of which more than half of them don't even know they're pre-diabetic. And so- Heart disease is still the number one killer. So when people ask where to get the protein from, I was like, I don't even think about protein. Where am I getting my protein from? Here, I'll give you my third answer. Every single sprout contains every single amino acid to make a protein. So where am I getting my proteins from? Sprouts. Where and you, you said get- one day's worth of eating sprouts, which is really only about 800 calories, is more nutrients than most people get from their diet in a week. Oh, micronutrients, phytonutrients for sure. And also it's constantly evolving information. You could easily eat thousands of calories a day of sprouts. It all depends. You know, if you're eating alfalfa sprouts, it's low calorie, right? If you're eating garbanzo beans, if you're eating sprouted lentils, if you're eating sprouted peas, if you're eating sprouted chia, you could easily get as many calories as you want. The problem Mm -hmm. is, the whole notion of calories and how they translate into weight gain, wet loss, muscle is such an imperfect science. And no one is really tracking exactly. Like if, if someone really wanted to do research, they should, you got to take people and you have to create ankle bracelets, chow hall, <laughs> limited food, 
you know, full monitoring. I mean, maybe that's what you use Google Glass for is to make sure that someone's not doing something, you know, you're seeing the world through their lens to get healthy stuff. So I I don't know, but what I will say is where I used to be a very hardcore vegan and I'm still 100% vegan, but now when I speak to other people, I'm less about telling them what to do, what not to do. What I am doing is I'm encouraging them to add sprouts to their diet. And the more sprouts they add, the better they will feel. And I had no idea that sprouts were the number one food for regulating insulin levels. I had no idea that sprouts were the number one food for weight loss. I had no idea that sprouts contained a compound called glucoraphanin that when it mixed with an enzyme called myrosinase would form sulforaphane that would have these chemoprotective anti-cancer properties. I had no idea of these things. And similar to me going all in, whether it was with graffiti or graphic design or the military, you know, or juice, I'm all in on the sprouts and I'm so grateful. Like, I can't believe like the way you went all in on meditation in the late nineties and you've stayed in and you've made it your career and your vocation, and your identity with that. I can't believe that sprouts were just there. Like there's an opportunity waiting to sprout. Like they were just waiting <laughs> for someone to show them some love and put them on the map. And like, you know, I'm going to New York next week to be on Good Day New York to talk about sprouts. It's just the beginning of like, oh, and this was sending text messages, calling, messaging. Like I go through without fear of rejection. And that's, you know, that's a great, great skill and a muscle to have that I really, I would love for everyone to take my call. I would love for everyone to respond to my call. I'd love all my emails, text messages to re, be responded to positively. And if they don't, so what? You mentioned in the book that, in the book is the Sprout book. You mentioned that your brother, Andrew, was your greatest teacher. Briefly, why did you say that? Because I'm so evolved in so many ways. Mm-hmm. My brother can trigger me in a millisecond. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> like in a millisecond. I still cannot sit through a dinner without being triggered in one or two or a hundred way, shape, or forms. And so mm-hmm. it's constant reminding. And there's so many similarities. And it's great to have my wife whisper to me afterwards, like, Doug, you do the same thing that you're telling him not to do. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I know. But like, I'm sorry, I just can't control myself. So that's it. It's a great practice. And I, I'm so glad to have my brother still here mm. kicking. Beautiful. Thank you so much, man, for sharing so vulnerably your life. It was a pleasure and an honor to chat with you. This is one of my favorite conversations I've had in a long time. And hopefully I'll get out to Wander Valley one of these days soon and we can hang out in the and soak in one of the hot springs, one of the natural hot springs. I would love that light. 
And I would say, you know, you were the most prepared. <laughs> you, know, you did even more preparation than John and Ocean Robbins. Like you got, you really did your homework and it's a testament to who you are and your presence and why you're successful. And that's what created the trust for me to be vulnerable because mm. I trusted that there's no gotcha. You know, when the vice interview was, and they asked about Ducero and they're looking for gotcha, it just triggers me like, no, I'm not going to feed your desire for clickbait. But I know that you are all love light. You are mm -hmm. all love. You are all heart. You're all goodness. You're all light. And as a result, why wouldn't I be open and vulnerable, you know, with you? Because I know where your heart is. Yeah, thank you so much, man. Yeah, you know, when I took on the name Light in 2005, that was part of the deal. You know, painting myself in this corner, you can't be an asshole and call yourself <laughs> Light. So you have to go above and beyond. But yeah, man, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And you look good, you sound good, and I'm, I'm happy that you're out there, very much on mission. And we know that's what the world needs more of is just people who are doing things that light them up inside. And so I'm honored to be able to call you a friend. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Doug Evans. If you're not already following the Sprout Guy, make sure to follow Doug on social media. It's at Doug Evans. That's just D-O-U-G-E-V-A-N-S. And you can grab a copy of the Sprout book everywhere books are sold. Of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to the Light Watkins show, we've got an incredible archives of past interviews with other luminaries such as Ed Milet, director Ava DuVernay, spoken word artist Saul Williams, chef Marcus Samuelson. So it's people from a bunch of different fields of interest, and they're sharing how they found their path and their purpose. You can also search the interviews by subject matter. If you go to lightwatkins.com slash show, you'll see a drop-down menu where you can search people who've overcome health challenges, financial struggles, people who've taken leaps of faith, etc. And if you want to watch these interviews, you can do so on YouTube. If you just go to YouTube and search Light Watkins Podcast, you'll see a whole playlist where you can put a face to their story. And if you didn't already know, I post the raw, unedited version of each podcast a day early in my Happiness Insiders online community. So if you're the type that loves to hear all of the false starts and the chit chat and the mistakes and the places where we have to cut it out, then you want to sign up for the happinessinsiders.com. You can get a free three-day trial just to check it out. Listen to as many episodes as you want to. And if you feel inspired to join and maybe take the 108-day meditation challenge, all of that is at thehappinessinsiders.com. And then one way you can support the show that's not going to cost you anything is just to go to the page for the show on the Apple Podcast app and leave a rating or review. All you do is you look at the Apple Podcast app, which you're probably already listening to this podcast on, click on the name of the show, scroll down past the eight episodes in the beginning, and you'll see a space with five blank stars. Just click the star all the way on the right if you want to leave us a five-star review because you like the show. 
And if you want to go the extra mile, leave a review with the one or two episodes that you recommend people start with, the ones that really inspired you. Because when people discover a new show, oftentimes they want to know which episodes are the ones that I really want to start with. So if you could do that, that would be amazing. That would be a great way to pay it forward. And I appreciate the time that you spend doing that because it helps make this podcast that much more searchable and it helps people find the best content, the best interviews right away. I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you who took a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, please keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking your leaps of faith. And who knows, maybe one day, We'll be having a conversation about it on this podcast as well. Thank you so much. If no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.